Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast, part of the Talent 409 Leadership Academy Network. I am your host, Colin Cernelia, and thank you so much for joining us today. Please head over to talent409.com to learn more about how we can help your team or organization with their leadership and culture development. This podcast is available on Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast. Plus, don't forget, you can now play this podcast on any Amazon-enabled device. Just ask Alexa, play the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Getting Dynamic Leaders with Colin Treniglia from Apple Podcasts. Before this episode begins, please consider taking a minute and leave a rating and review. Doing this really does help us grow the show, and you can get featured for your review on a future episode. On to this week's featured guest, I had the opportunity to speak with Molly Grisham. Molly is a leadership development coach who also has 20 years of coaching experience at the collegiate, high school, and club levels. She helps athletes reach and exceed personal goals teams become more productive, leaders achieve new heights, and companies be more competitive in their markets through highly engaging programs, curriculum, and workshops. During our conversation, Molly and I talk about what it means to experience light bulb moments, how we can become more competitive, what a healthy coach looks like, plus how teams can become more productive. This was a fun conversation. Molly is so amazing and so insightful. You're really going to enjoy this, so let's dive right into it. Here is my talk with Molly Grisham. Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Today, my guest with me is Molly Grisham. Molly, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, I'm so excited to get to talk to you about your background, especially with the work that you're doing. And we just had a quick conversation offline before we hit record. And I know you've had a really energizing and exciting morning before we get to this. So I can't wait to add on to that and let you tell everybody all about that. But before I spoil it and tell everybody all about you, I do want to give you an opportunity to tell the listening audience a little bit about yourself. So please tell us, who are you? Certainly. My name is Molly Grisham. I am a former college soccer coach, spent most of my career, uh, two decades in athletics, mostly as a division two head coach. And I loved coaching. It was a job or work that I was amazed most days of the week that I got paid to do because (laughs) I really, really enjoyed the work. But I realized probably the last eight or 10 years of my career that I was in coaching because I loved helping people develop. And soccer was really just that platform, that reason that I had a team and a a group of people to help develop. And so I became really intentional about leadership development and team culture and how we could invest really directly in our players. And would that make a difference in our program? And so I got into experiential learning and started doing training and experiential learning and started using those tools with my team. And 
we did notice a difference. Um, two things we noticed pretty quickly was, one, we became more competitive, which doesn't mean we won every game, but we closed the gap and, and we were maybe in some games we shouldn't have been in and won a few games that we shouldn't have won. So that was fun to see that that investment in leaders and in culture and team building does translate to competition. But the other thing we noticed was we just had more fun as a team. And I really attribute that to the fact that as we developed leaders and as we provided clarity around culture, our players were able to manage the little things before they turned into big things. So we had less drama and we had less tension <laughs> and we had less issues. And we were really able to enjoy each other. And so ultimately what happened was um, I knew at some point I would leave coaching, but I thought that would happen after retirement. I didn't think it would happen in my early 40s. But I started to have other coaches and teams reaching out to me and saying, I don't know what you're doing with your team, but it's working. Can you come help us? <laughs> so about four years ago, I resigned from coaching and started my own business. And I now work with teams and groups all over the country on things like leadership development and team building and culture and conflict resolution, all this stuff that either speeds a team up or slows a team down. I would say right now, 75% of my clients are college athletic teams. The other 25% would be corporate groups, nonprofit organizations, a few faith communities, but adults that are wanting to grow and develop. So I'm grateful for the work that I get to do to help people develop the skills they need to navigate the path that they're on. That's so cool. And again, we are going to dive so much into what you're doing in more detail because I'm really curious, especially about some of the things that you just mentioned. But before we get there, so you mentioned being a soccer coach. Did that come from building on a soccer career that you had before that? Where did athletics kind of fit into your adolescent life? Yeah, I grew up playing soccer, started when I was five years old, um, played all the way through. And I was, I was a, a Title IX baby. I was born in 1974. So really when some shifts were happening and some opportunities were opening up for women and girls to participate in sports. And, and I know that my sport experience significantly influenced who I was as a person. There are skills that I learned as an athlete, not just learning how to how to dribble with both feet or how to pass with both feet, but things like my work ethic, things like being able to commit to a team and commit to a process, understanding how to work with people who are different than me, setting goals and understanding how to work towards those goals. So my experience as a young person playing sports, it was a very positive experience. And I think now as an adult, I can see all of those transferable life skills that I learned as a young person that now helped me to be successful as an adult. So when you talk about being able to take what you learned when you were younger and being able to apply it in your adult life, was that something for you personally that you were able to recognize when you were younger and like utilize it in a way that we maybe sometimes hope we would have if we're looking back as adults and we say, wow, I really went through some adversity on the playing field and that has helped me through this and that situation. But I don't know that we're so good at being able to connect those dots when we're 14 or 15 and we're still trying to figure out so much about life. But for you specifically, was that something that you were able to connect when you were younger or did it take going through some more experiences before it clicked? No, I think it took some some real life experiences before I was able to realize where those skills came from. Okay. I certainly knew at a young age 
I was developing some skills, but because I was around my team a lot, around my coaches a lot, I just thought this is how the world worked. And so it wasn't <laughs> until I was an adult and, and was around people who didn't participate in team sports or hadn't worked through adversity that I began to realize, oh, I had a different experience as a young person. This isn't what everyone grew up being taught. So I learned those skills while I was young, but the awareness of these skills certainly came later in life. Okay. Awesome. That's fair enough. So then you have your athletic career and you go through college and when did you decide, I guess, that you wanted to get into coaching? Like, was that something that you decided to do right away that you had longed to do for a while? Or was that something that you fell into? You had tried some other things, maybe in the corporate world first? Yeah, I fell into it. Out of college, I had a job waiting for me at a nonprofit. And one day, one of our editors, who was a freelance uh, writer, freelance editor for us, was in the office. And he came up to me and this this happened when I was working uh, out east. I was in Pennsylvania. And he kind of had a panicked look on his face. And he said, Molly, I, I heard you, you played soccer. I said, I did. He's like, uh, you know, I'm an East Coast guy. I'm a hockey guy. I was like, okay. I have no idea where this is going. <laughs> and he said, I just got picked to be the parent coach for my son's seven-year-old soccer team. <laughs> like he was – like the, the blood was draining from his face in this conversation. He said, could you just come out one time and just do something? And I said, yeah, 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 of course. I'd, I'd love to. Well, come out one time turned into every Tuesday and Thursday. And then it turned in, you know, the, the next season to taking the club team. And then it turned into me pursuing more club opportunities. And I just began to work my way up that ladder of, uh, the quality of the teams I was coaching, the quality of the clubs I was with, and then also my coaching education. I was really fortunate to have a director of coaching, probably my third or fourth year of coaching, who pulled me aside and said, look, you've got a lot of potential, but you've got to go through this education process if you want to be a high-level coach. And, and so I jumped right in with that and continued to develop myself. But I'm someone who never had a female coach, and even my college coach was not a full-time coach. So it was never on my radar that coaching was something that I should consider or should pursue. And so I'm grateful that what turned out to be a moment of panic for someone else opened <laughs> my eyes to how I could use my skills and my gifts and the things that I love to essentially become a career for myself. Yeah, that's amazing when you think about sometimes in life where opportunities come from <laughs> and a lot of times like the best opportunities come when you're not even seeking it, like that moment that you just explained to us. That's so cool. So I'm curious whenever I talk to coaches now, did you, I guess we'll start here. Did you go right into like a head coaching position or were you an assistant trying to work your way up? How did that work? Yeah. The first, um, in my 20s, I was a head high school coach and started off in a club as a head coach and then kind of worked my way through the more elite level teams in that club and became director of coaching for a club and then made the decision um, in my early 30s. It was like, well, what's next? And, and so decided to pursue the college game. So for one season, I took an assistant job with a team and I was really grateful for that opportunity. The, the game is the same, but the responsibilities for a college coach is just different than sure. a club coach. I wouldn't say that one is 
more difficult or harder or better. It's just, it's just a different set of responsibilities. And so I had a season as an assistant coach to, to learn what college coaching is all about, learn about recruiting and how all that works. And then after one season, got a head position and um, was a head coach from there on out. So if there are young listeners on here and they, so maybe they're already in an assistant level position or they want to aspire to get into coaching and they're trying to determine what am I really getting myself into? And I, there's a lot of distinctions, especially at the college level between an assistant coach and what a head coach does. And I'm wondering if maybe you can just outline what some of those differences are and what some of those responsibilities are for both positions. So that if, again, somebody's listening and they're trying, whether they're already in an assistant position and they're trying to determine, do I want to be a head coach? Like, can I take on that responsibility? Or if they haven't even gotten into the field yet and they're trying to determine, is this something I actually want to do? Yeah, I think one of the biggest differences between a head coach and an assistant coach at the college level is the head coach really has to function like the CEO of her program. Um, There are a lot of administrative duties that a head coach takes on from managing a budget to managing your staff to dealing with alumni relations and fundraising, you are really leading an entity, an organization. Whereas an assistant coach, I think if you have a healthy head coach, if you have a a head coach that will allow you in many ways is dealing with more of the the game stuff on a day-to-day basis. They are less of a, a CEO and a little bit more of a manager of a particular department on their pro- within their program. And so I think for assistant coaches, it's a great opportunity to really dig deep in one particular area that you want to grow. And I certainly would encourage assistant coaches to have that conversation with their head coach. And this is the thing I want to get better at. This is the thing I want to learn about. How can I have a piece of that? be a part of my responsibilities as an assistant coach because when you are the head coach you need to have knowledge of all of those things you you are overseeing something and moving something in the right direction and now as I work with coaches all over the country I would say that's the biggest struggle that a lot of head coaches have they know the x's and o's of their game and a lot of them can recruit because they're very charismatic but they struggle to be the ceo of their program they struggle to make some of those business and leadership decisions that fall on the head coach. And and so there's a pretty significant distinction between the two. And again, one is not better or worse than the other, but they are very different in terms of what is on your plate. Hey everyone, Christine here from Sweat with Stods, one of this show's sponsors. The Dynamic Leaders Podcast is here to help you be a better leader. And the best leaders take care of themselves both mentally and physically. I'm here to help on the physical side by making fitness accessible to everyone. As a certified personal trainer with years of experience coaching fitness classes, I've designed programs that can be followed at home and in the gym. These are intelligently structured programs, giving you a plan to follow to help you be successful. Build strength with my Get Strong at Home program, get quick results with Hit at Home 1 or 2, or work on your health outside of fitness with my Healthy Habits program. As a listener, you can get these programs at a discounted rate by entering code DYNAMIC at checkout. That's D-Y-N-A-M-I-C at checkout. So head on over to sweatwithstods.com, that's sweat with S-T-O-D-D-S.com to take the next step toward achieving your health and fitness goals today. Do you think that there is 
some type of reason that we can outline as to why people struggle in that CEO type position, whether it's just in general, like in the corporate world or at a head coach position, like taking on that responsibility. What is it about that responsibility that you see throughout your working experience where people are struggling the most? Yeah, I think probably the most obvious challenge is we move people into leadership positions because they're really good at what they do. Mm -hmm. But that shift into leadership forces them to essentially stop doing what they were really good at. So you think about uh, a head coach that's or an assistant coach that's really great at the X's and O's and player relationships. It's, it's a coach. She can motivate anybody. And so you make her a head coach. But now she's got to do all these other things and is spending less time with her players, less time doing the thing that energizes her, less time doing the thing that is her strength. And, and again, you can compare that to the corporate world. You, you have somebody who, let's say they're in a, a marketing department and they're the best designer. And so now you make them the manager of that department and they're no longer doing the design work on a day-to-day. So not only are they not getting to do the thing that they were great at, but there's a whole other skill set that they've never been trained in. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to to be aware of that when we put someone in a leadership position, not only are we asking them to do or to utilize skills that they haven't before, but we're also taking away sometimes the thing that has been their lifeblood, the thing that excites them to get up in the morning, the thing that they're passionate about. And we're asking them to try to be good at something that they've never done before. And so I think anytime we put someone in a leadership position, having mentors around them who can help them navigate that is critical to anyone's success. All right. I've kind of moved us already into talking a little bit about the work that you're currently doing and how you can help individuals and teams work through some of the challenges that are inevitable in athletics and in sports and in the corporate world. But before we keep diving further into that, I do want to talk about your transition and understand a little bit more why ultimately it made more sense for you to leave the coaching world as it is traditionally and start your own business to do the coaching and training that you are now. And I know there's examples like I can think of of the uh, head coach at the University of Washington football team. He just stepped down because he talked about something that he's really passionate about is developing players. And as the head football coach, (laughs) a revenue building sport notwithstanding, you don't get the opportunity to do the things that you love. And he just ultimately got to a point. He's, you know, I think somewhere in his like mid fifties or something like that, really successful coach. And it kind of shocked people. But then you talk to the people who really knew him and you started to see these reports and it's like, well, he wasn't actually really happy in that head coaching position. Like it's not the work that drives him and excites him. So I'm sure there's some type of story or background as to what made you ultimately decide to take that leap and bet on yourself. But I'd love to learn a little bit more about what that situation and what that time was like in your life. Yeah, I, I look back on it and I I think the question I was wrestling with was, do I want to continue to invest in my 25 players, which I felt really good about. We would spend time for a couple of years recruiting players and then we'd have them in our program for four years and then we continue a relationship with them as alumni and get to see them take what they learned out into the world. And so 
it felt really good to invest deeply in 25 players. But the question I was wrestling with was, is that what I want? Or do I essentially want an unlimited audience? Do I want to work with high school students, college students, adults? Do I want to work with coaches and administrators and business professionals? Do I want to limit myself to my team or do I essentially want a global audience? And one of the things I was just deeply aware of was I knew I could always go back to coaching. I knew that maybe I would have to relocate or maybe I'd have to be an assistant or there might be some challenges, but I knew I could go back to coaching. Sure. What I didn't know was if this energy and excitement about this new thing and this opportunity to have a, a blank slate as an audience, if that opportunity would come back around again. And I felt so strongly pulled towards that. And I'm just wired in a way that once something makes sense to me, I don't care if it makes sense to anyone else. <laughs> and the reality is when I made the decision, a lot of people thought I had lost my mind. It just didn't make sense. Why would you leave a predictable, steady paycheck for nothing? Like you're, you're going to try to create something out of nothing. It made no sense to a lot of people. Right. Um, but it made sense to me. Like that pull in my life to pursue something new, to create something, to help solve some problems and help people have a better experience. I just felt like it was a bigger risk to stay than to go. And so for me, that pull in my life was something that I couldn't ignore and something that I had to step into. Okay. One last question before we fully transition into the work, because I have a ton of questions around certain aspects of what you do, but I'm curious from just strictly more of an entrepreneurial mindset when you decided to make that leap and to start your own business. And there are a lot of people that listen to this podcast, whether they've started off already or they're thinking of starting their own business and they're just wondering, how do I actually do it? And my mind, I try to keep things as easy as possible. And I've been able to help a few people here and there, but I love hearing other people's stories about what they did to first get up and going and how they were able to maybe use their previous connections and network to, you know, help them out in in the beginning. Can you just talk to us a little bit about like strictly from a more entrepreneurial side of things, how you were able to get your business up and running? Yeah, I think if if I went back to that first year and looked at all of my invoices or looked at my calendar, there were a lot of soccer coaches uh, <laughs> that I worked with because that was my network. That's who I knew. And those were the people who had been reaching out to me and saying, I don't know what's working with your team or what you're doing with your team, but it's working. Can you come help us? And so I took them up on that and said, yes, I would love to come help you. Um, so I, I did work with a lot of soccer people. I just leaned on my network. And then as I got better at what I was doing, was able to expand my network. And, and the reality is, while I do have a website and I do have social media and I do videos and I do blogs, I would say 90% of my work, if not more, is word of mouth. And so those soccer coaches that I was working with started to say, hey, can I give your number to our basketball coach or can I give my AD your number? They did a lot of that groundwork for me. And looking back as an entrepreneur, I, I think part of the reason that worked for me is it looked like to the outside world that I had just quit my job and was starting something new. But the reality was I, I had been doing that work with my team 
for years. So I had been practicing the work I, I was going to go do. So I didn't have to necessarily learn a new skill set. I had the work. I was just going to do it with a larger audience. And, and so I would encourage people who are thinking about making a shift and thinking about doing something new. How can you begin to incorporate that thing you want to build into your day-to-day -day life now so that when you do make that transition, that's one less thing that you have to put on your to-do list. You have already been doing the work. Now you're just going to do it in a new and a different way. Yeah, I love that advice. It, it almost takes away the like that sharp pain or feeling that that you talked about and you described where to the outside world it looks like you were literally making this 180 switch like just quitting your job and going into this great wide open world that you had no idea what you were doing but you were building a foundation for so many years before that and I think that is where a lot of at least from what I've seen and I guess this isn't across the board but where people do struggle I guess is probably the best way is that they just want to flip that switch and make that drastic change. And they haven't taken the time to either like research what they're doing and understand if there's a market for it to start, but you'll be, you can be laying that foundation for so many years. And, and then one day it's makes sense to fully go in. And it's like none of that work that you've been doing for the, you know, if, if you had been doing that work for the previous seven, eight years, it's not like any of that was wasted work or anything. Right. It was just work for you to, to build up, to get to where you need it, to make that decision to go all in. Yeah. When I, when I look back on it, the learning curve for me was more on the structural side of the business. Like how do I set up an LLC? How do <laughs> I set up a bank account? What do my taxes need to look like? But the actual work I was doing, the, the, the type of facilitation, the experiential learning, that was easy. I had already been doing that. So my list of things I had to learn or, or my learning curve was a little less steep because I'd already been engaged in that process. And it's a big deal to start your own business. So how can you start preparing for that now and checking some things off your list now before you completely pivot and make a change? All right. Now with your work, I want to stick with coaches since we've been talking a lot about coaching and then one of the phrases that you used earlier in the conversation was a healthy head coach. And that struck me as something that is probably really important to the overall success, however you define that for your team and for your program. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what that phrase means to you and why it's important to have a healthy head coach? Yeah, when I think about a team, I think that so much of your experience drips down from your head coach, if you will. So your head coach is passing things on to the assistant, who's passing things on to the grad assistant, who's passing things on to the volunteer assistant, who's passing things on to the players. It just kind of works its way. It seeps its way into the, the team and into the culture. And so I think one of the challenges that so many head coaches face, and I, I get it, I was there myself, is so much of our identity is wrapped up in winning. And so much of our identity is also connected to this idea that our job security is to identify a problem and fix it as fast as possible. And sometimes that means we don't come up with the best solution. Sometimes that means we didn't even solve the right problem. But most coaches in most sports know I have to make game time decisions. I have to make immediate decisions. I have to go for it. And that may work on the court or in the field, 
doesn't always work in life. And so when I say being healthy, I mean having a sense of identity outside of wins and losses and being able to provide perspective for yourself and perspective for those around you, which often means pressing pause on trying to come up with solutions. It sometimes means we have to say as a, as a head coach to everyone around us and to ourselves, I don't know the answer yet. In fact, not even sure I understand the problem, but we're going to take some time and we're going to get there. And that is not, that, that is not a common practice in the world of athletics. It really is identify the problem, fix it as fast as you can, move on. And so to me, being healthy is, is just understanding what is your identity as a person outside of wins and losses, and can you provide that space and that perspective for yourself and for those around you? Because the reality is whatever you do as a head coach, everybody else is going to mimic. Sure. And so if you are in panic mode all the time, the sky is falling, we're going to get fired, the world is ending, everybody picks up on that. Whether they say it or not, everybody picks up on that. That seeps into your culture. So again, I think a healthy head coach is a gift to a team. I'm going to put you into a challenging scenario that I'm sure you've encountered before and you'll encounter in the future. I want to connect it to the wins and losses. I had Mary Wise, who's the head women's volleyball coach at the University of Florida. She was on and she was talking about how she's been able to, she's going into her 30th year of coaching this fall and just with, with the University of Florida and how you're able to sustain that and be there. And she's like, yeah, well, you know, winning and losing, I mean, that's obviously a big part of the equation and she's been able to do a pretty significant amount of winning and that's helped her with her job security. But what I'm wondering is when you get a call from a coach who, I don't know, let's say they're three, four years into their tenure and they haven't won yet, like at a, at a rate that's acceptable for whatever that job security is supposed to look like. So they haven't won and they're not what you would consider a healthy head coach. And I'm putting you in this scenario because time's not really on your side. Like you don't have as much time to cultivate over the course of two, three seasons, because if this person doesn't win, maybe they're out next year. Like they don't get another chance. What do you do? Like in a scenario like that, like how do you, how do you convince a coach who comes to you in that scenario and says, I want to be a healthy coach, but I may only have one more shot at this. How do I, how do I do it? I mean, I guess them coming to you is probably half of the equation right there, but how do you actually get them to start believing in everything that you just talked about? Yeah. Um, I've been in that situation a lot. <laughs> it's a very familiar situation. Um, so I, I, a couple of thoughts. One is I'm not sure that a coach ever says to me, I want to be a healthy coach. I think what they say to me is I want to keep my job. And from there, my job is to help them understand that their health directly impacts their success um, and their ability to keep their job. I, I would also share that my experience has been your second year on the job is your hardest year. I call it second year syndrome. And it is this idea that usually when you come in your first year, it is a year where everybody's on their honeymoon. Everybody's happy. There's new gear. There's new rules. There's new things we do in practice. Everybody feels like they have an opportunity to be a starter. 
and then year two rolls around and, and people start to figure some things out and that's when the ship starts to sink. And so I get a lot of calls <laughs> after year two and three where coaches say, if, if we don't sort this out fast, I'm going to be out of a job. Mm-hmm. And so in that scenario, I, I am working closely with a, a coach to assess what are the things that they're doing or not doing that are being dripped into their culture that they're unaware of. And then how can we provide clarity to the path that they need to navigate? So for example, I'm working with a coach right now who's getting ready to go into her second year. First year was good. Um, We've had some really honest conversations that second year is probably not going to be good. Just historically, that's just the way it works. And so we're spending a lot of time right now, giving clarity and definition to what the culture of this program is going to be. Because when the wheels fall off, we want to be able to have that foundation of a culture. And the other thing we're doing is being really intentional right now about who do we want to develop as leaders on the program, in the program, so that when things get rough, we've got the right people saying and doing the right things that will provide some structure. Because my experience has been when year three and year four are not good and the pressure is on and it's about to fall apart and you're scared to death because you're going to lose your job and your family is going to lose your health insurance and you're going to have to move across the country. All those things that cause a head coach to spiral. My experience has been that's when the coach tries to do it all. And if your culture is really solid and your team leaders are really solid and we're able to work through your health as a coach, then you're going to be okay. The things will start to fall into place, um, but we've got to give some clarity and some structure to those things so that that head coach doesn't feel like she has to do it all when they're in crisis mode. Charlotte's Web is a leader in CBD hemp products, including oils, gummies, and topicals. These products can assist you with anything from faster fitness recovery to getting a better night's sleep. They even have products for dogs. Personally, I like the gummies best, and I'm telling you, the sleep gummies have helped me improve the quality of my sleep. I also love supporting Charlotte's Web because they are committed to unlocking opportunities for women to succeed through the Women's Bean Project. You can learn more about that project or any of their products by going to their website, charlottesweb.com. As a loyal podcast listener, you can receive 15% off of items. All you have to do is just enter the word dynamic at checkout to receive 15% off of Charlotte's Web CBD hemp products. I love that we've been able to spend so much time on coaching specifically, and you've been able to provide so much clarity and so much guidance to, I think, people who are listening to this, it would be super helpful. And the reason that I think it's so great is one of my mentors is Carl Olson. He's the He runs the sports performance department at Penn State. And I think it was maybe the first conversation I ever had with him, maybe first or second and he talked about how important he thought it was and how much of a missed opportunity there is in the marketplace right now for coaches to get education when it comes to leadership and to team building and culture building and all those things that student athletes and athletes in general seem to be getting a lot these days, especially a lot more than when I was playing sports. He said that to me, and it's just something that has 
really stuck out as, as something that I think is true. And I'm not sure I have the answer as to how we get more coaches open to the education, but also how do we get them the time to do it? Because as you've outlined and talked about, I mean, there are so many responsibilities, especially if you're a head coach that you have and to get the time to do something like this, like in theory, it sounds really great, but how do we, how do we do this? Like, how do we make sure that coaches in particular are being afforded these opportunities that student athletes seem to get across the board these days? Yeah. And a lot of my work with teams, I wouldn't say this is a hundred percent of the time, but certainly the vast majority of time when a coach brings me in to work with their team, I say, great, but your, your coaching staff has to be there. You and your coaches have to join us in the session. And there's usually reluctancy <laughs> out of the <laughs> gate. It's like, no, Molly, we're bringing you here to, you know, you deal with But I'm keenly aware that they are the ones that are there on a daily basis who have to reinforce whatever I'm teaching, whatever we're talking about. They need to have a, a shared language that gets infused in their culture. But I'm also aware that the things I'm talking about with student athletes directly apply to coaches. And if they, you know, a lot of the coaches that I work with were elite level players, but if they didn't come through a program that gave them leadership development and team building and culture and all those resources, then all of this is new to the coaches as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking back of a, a team that I've been with for a while and their head coach is highly respected, highly respected. She's an elite level coach. And I was doing a workshop with them on leadership development and head coach was sitting there in the middle of the athletes front row, taking copious amounts of notes. I mean, page after page, after page, after note, she's writing down everything I said. And so I was talking with one of the players that afternoon or the next day, I'm not sure when it was, but it was after that session. And I said, Hey, what were some of your takeaways? And she kind of took a big breath and, said, Molly, there was a lot, a lot to take out of that session. And I said, well, tell me a few things. And so she listed off a few. And so we we're just talking about why she, why she had picked this program, why she was in it. And she said, Molly, did you see that our head coach took more notes than anyone in the room? I said, well, I actually did notice that. <laughs> and she's like, man, if this stuff is important to her, it's important to me. And I know I'm going to be learning from one of the best. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, this player saw – this matters to my head coach. My head coach is paying attention. My head coach is taking notes. And now I have a level of trust with my head coach because she's in this process with us. And so I do face reluctancy from coaches who say, no, we don't have time. We can't do it. Most of the time I stand my ground and say like, look, I need you there to reinforce the message that I'm giving. But I'm also deeply aware that a lot of this is new for them. And if we just say to coaches, go do it on your own time, they don't have their own time. So we've got to build it in to their day and, and build it into a part of their team process. That's so powerful. And it just reminds me how important it is to get that leadership to start at the top. And I know as in society, we're trying to get away from hierarchy and a lot of organizations have flattened out to try to portray that. But I mean, you need to have some type of direction. You need to have somebody that is is leading the pack, right? Like you can't just have this chaos. And how powerful is that to have some type of session where your head coach is there in front of everyone else, taking those notes and just 
setting the tone, right? That That is just so powerful and so awesome and, and something I wish that you would quite honestly see more. And unfortunately, you don't. Yeah, yeah. It's It's been really fun for me. As I work with teams on a regular basis, our, our sessions just get deeper and deeper and just, I would say, more real as we go. And there have been some sessions where some coaches have shared just some of their life experiences and some of their struggles and some of the adversity, and they instantly become human in the eyes of their student athletes. <laughs> especially as you think about elite level teams, so many of these student athletes pick their school because of their head coach. And for right. many of them, their head coach is their idol. And then all of a sudden, when she becomes human, it's like, it's fun to watch it happen because now student athletes are wanting to fight for their coach. They want to play well for them. They're, they're appreciative that a coach was willing to share a piece of their journey with them. I think in many ways in that moment, coaches, whether they realize it or not, are just affirming their student athletes in the struggles that they're facing. And I don't know that they use those words exactly, but when a head coach or an assistant coach can share some of their struggles, all of a sudden student athletes realize they're not alone in the struggles they're facing. So powerful. And it actually (laughs) segues us very nicely. I was going to ask, I saw one of your taglines and what we just described seems like a light bulb moment. And one of your taglines is to experience light bulb moments. And I'd love to just learn a little bit more about why that is something that you portray as a part of your business and something that you want people to know is a part of who you are and a part of what your business does. Sure. I love using that tagline because it's exactly what I get to do on a daily basis. I get to utilize experiential tools and practices where a team can come together and and do something together. And then we sit down and unpack that. That's probably where I'm at my best is facilitating some of those conversations and learning from each other. Um, I don't come in as the expert. Like I think I could, The other comparison would be I could walk in with a flashlight and shine a flashlight on all your problems, or I can create tools and processes that allow us to have the light bulb go on in the room together. And it is so powerful when you see a team experience something together. Like literally they've been in the dark and the light goes on and it's that moment that they say, oh my gosh, okay, we can do this. this. This is how this, we didn't know this was a problem or we didn't know this was a solution or we didn't know this could be better or I didn't know this about myself or I didn't know this about my teammate or my coach. And it is literally like the light just went on. And I am not walking in as the expert with the answers. In fact, I'm walking in with a lot of questions and I'm walking in with tools and processes. And most of the time I have no idea what's going to come out of this, (laughs) but I, I trust these tools. I trust these processes And I think when you put people in an environment where they can have a shared experience and shared growth, good things always come from that. Another interesting thing I found when I was just looking through your website and reading about the work that you do, you have this one page on your website that is a reading list of resources. And I think it's so cool that you've listed them out for people who I don't know, maybe they can't afford to work with you or they don't have the time or they're not part of the program that you're working with. And there are so many other ways that you can learn 
without having direct, you know, face to face, well, not in this social distancing time, but that type of training and coaching, you could still learn from books, you can still learn from podcasts, and your list is quite long. I guess my first question is, have you read all of those books? I have read all of them. Um, (laughs) There are several, when you walk into my house, first thing you'll see are, are bookshelves with hundreds and hundreds of books, lots of which are not listed on that list. So I realize it's a slightly overwhelming list, but I don't put anything on that list that I haven't read or that I don't feel like would be useful for my audience. And I've, and I've tried to categorize them kind of by themes. Um, but I always tell people if there's something you're looking for and you're not sure where to start, just shoot me an email. I'll be glad to be your librarian for you and give you some guidance on what to read. Cause I know it's frustrating when you purchase a book and get halfway through it and realize, ugh, this isn't what I wanted it to be. <laughs> and I love to read. I, I read almost daily. Um, and I'm always glad to share those resources and share my love of reading with other people. Yeah, and I'm going to link that list to the show notes so people can see it and pick out. But if you had to maybe choose one or two that are just really good across the board, if if somebody's like, eh, I'm not really sure, and maybe they just don't want to email you or bother you or something like that, would would there be one or two that you could just say off the top of your head, this this is one a good one to start with? Yeah, I, I tell people... Often, if you can only read one leadership book, it needs to be Leaders Eat Last by mm. Simon Sinek. Yes. And I have a lot of my student athletes reading that. A lot of my coaches read that as well. I would also put Help the Helper on that list. Um, neither of those are like 90 pages and you can knock them out that night. They're mm-hmm. a little heavier. You're going to want a highlighter and maybe a, some sort of tabs that you can put in both of those books. But for people in leadership roles, um, those are wonderful books to read. And I think athletes are drawn, drawn to both of those as well. Yeah. I'll have to check out the helping one. I've re- read the one by Simon Sinek uh, and that's a really great book. I, I can second that, but I'll have to check out that other one. Uh, I'm yeah. always looking for books too. I'm a big reader and like to do that in my free time. Very cool. I'm, I appreciate you providing that. And like I said, I'll link to the full list in the show notes for everybody so that we can get that. And while we're on the topic of putting stuff into the show notes, Molly, if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about your business, where can we find you? Yeah, the easiest place to find me is my website, mollygrisham.com, M-O-L-L-Y-G-R-I-S-H-A-M. All of my social media links are there. My blog is there. The ability to subscribe to my mailing list, which comes out about twice a month, is there. And then there's also a link to my YouTube channel. And just in the last couple of months, I started producing a series uh, about leadership and culture. And those videos are all about one minute long. And so I've got a lot of teams and coaches that are using those right now as conversation starters with their teams and with their leaders. And so certainly if there are videos or blogs that are helpful for you to have conversations with your people, I would encourage people to do that. But the the good place to start is on my website. Awesome. I will get all that information in. And Molly, before I let you go, the show is called Dynamic Leaders. And I mean, wow, you've just obviously showcased today how you are leading so many student athletes and coaches and all the other organizations that you mentioned earlier that you work with. But I like to give my guests an opportunity to shout out someone who has been influential from a leadership perspective or just in general in their own life. Do you have somebody that you want to give a quick shout out to? Yeah, I would, I would actually mention another author, uh, Alison Levine, 
who wrote uh, On the Edge. It's about climbing a mountain and her process there. I think for me as, as, as a woman, there are not a lot of women in the space of leadership. And so I appreciate her ability to write a great book. She's got some great TED Talks as well, one main TED Talk and some other videos as well that I often share with teams because I do want to be aware that I, I work with a lot of women's teams and I think I need to make visible for them other women who are in this space that they can emulate and, and model and look up to. So she, I think, is doing some, some great work in the space of leadership. That's an awesome shout out. And now I have two books already before I even go through your list and find some other books and <laughs> different things like that. But wow, Molly, again, this has been such an incredible conversation for me. And I know so many people are going to learn and really love this episode, but I can't thank you enough for taking some time out of your day to speak with us and to share all your guidance and expertise. It's been a real treat having you on the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.